This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Cynthia Weil, part of the songwriting team with her husband Barry Mann, died last week at the age of 82. Weil and Mann's songs were recorded by the Drifters and the Righteous Brothers and many others. Here's a sampling. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. up each morning and he goes downtown where everyone's his boys and he's lost in an angry land he's a little man but then he comes up The Crystals, The Righteous Brothers, Dusty Springfield, The Animals, and Dolly Parton. When Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann teamed up in the early 1960s, they were both staff writers for a music publishing company owned by Don Kirshner. They worked in Manhattan, in an office building near the Brill Building, when the area was the new Tin Pan Alley. Songwriters like Carole King, Jerry Goffin, Ellie Greenwich, and Neil Sadaka turned out material for the latest singers and pop groups. Unlike many songwriters of the 60s, Weil and Mann survived what was called the British Invasion. In 1999, Weil and Mann's song, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, was the most performed song of the century in the BMI publishing catalog. We're going to listen back to Terry's 2000 interview with Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann. They begin with this part of You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Baby, baby, I'd get down on my knees for you. Man, Cynthia Weil, welcome to Fresh Air. Well, thank, thank you. you. Uh, Barry Man, let me ask you first, what, um, what's happening in the melody of that song? Is there anything that, that you worked on that is particularly interesting to describe? 
Oh, I don't know if it would be interesting now, but when we wrote the song, it was very, uh, it was a very different for its time. That middle part that of the song, the you know the kind of the, the soulful part, uh, had never been done before. And also at the time, the record ran long, which for nowadays it's really short. It ran over three minutes, and uh, so Phil Spector, who produced the record. Um, even though it was, I think it was two, uh, he put 258 on it, even though I think it ran around 310 or so. So that's about the, the only difference I can talk about now. Oh, so he lied about the length so he didn't yes. play it. Uh-huh. Yes. When you say that, that part of the melody hadn't ever been done before, which part are you referring to? Maybe oh, to you can uh, hum it for us. You know, where they go, boom, 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 you know, baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. It kind of, uh, for that period, I think it was kind of very different to come out with something like that in a ballad. Mm-hmm. Cynthia Weil, what was the mm-hmm. part of the lyric that came to you first that you built everything else around? You know, Barry started playing that that opening melody, and I'm not sure which one of us. As a matter of fact, I think it was Barry who came up with the opening line, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And um, it just seemed to flow, and when we hit the, the chorus, one of us, I, I think it was me, sang out, you've lost that love and feeling, and we weren't even thinking of using it as the real title. I mean, in those days, um, we used to write a song and kind of just fill it up with any words just so we'd remember it. And um, we used to call that a dummy title or a dummy lyric. And uh, that was our dummy lyric. And then we wrote a verse and a chorus, and we called Phil, um, and we played it for him. And he said, that's not the dummy lyric. That's the lyric. That's the title, definitely. Yeah. Now, Phil Spector has a co-writing credit on mm-hmm. You've Lost That Love and Feeling. What did he add? Well, he, it was his suggestion to come up with that middle part, which was, which was a terrific suggestion. And uh, you know, after we did play those the verses and the choruses, he then joined in and, and uh, continued to... We wrote the rest of the song together. Song together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also he produced an incredible record. I yeah, mean, For its time. Yeah. So um, d- d- were you writing the song on assignment? Were you writing it for the Righteous Brothers? Yes, yeah, we um, we were living in New York at the time, and Phil, we had worked a little bit with Phil, and he wanted us to come out and work with him in L.A., and he played us a record of um, these two singers out of Orange County, and they had two local hits. Uh, one was called uh, My Babe, and the other was Little Latin Loopy Lou, and um, he said, you know, just let's think of a way to go with them. That's, that's interesting. I want to record them for my label. And uh, we were very inspired by the Four Tops and, and Baby, I Need Your Lovin' was our favorite song of the time because it had this really raw passion that, that we wanted to capture for the Righteous Brothers. And uh, when we wrote the song, they weren't that crazy about it. Really? Well, when I sang it, I, I, I loved the Everly Brothers at the time, and I, I sounded like the Everly Brothers. So when I sang it to Bill and Bobby, they said, you know, this is really good, very good for the Everly Brothers. And uh, another thing that happened is that at the time, you know, the records that they had been putting out, they both sang together. And this one, Bill Medley, had the, the lead. So Bobby said, well, what am I going to do while he sings? And I think Phil Spector says, well, you'll be uh, walking to the bank <laughs> so that's it. Phil was quite confident <laughs> in his abilities. <laughs> Give us a sense of of the process when you became a songwriting team. Were you assigned which singers you would be writing for back when you were working for Don Kirshner? It went both ways. We could just sit and write a song, or there were assignments. Um, the Drifters would be up, say, as a group, and everybody in, at all the music would run to write for the Drifters. But at the same time, there were songs we just sat down to write. When we originally, Cynthia and I wrote the original, there was an original version of On Broadway, and I always had the concept to try to write a Gershwin-esque kind of contemporary song. And that's basically how On Broadway uh, was written, or the reason for it. Again, there was no specific artist in mind. Um, so it, hap- it happened all different ways. Okay, let's stick with On Broadway for a minute. This was sure. a big hit for the Drifters. Mm-hmm. You had nobody particular in mind when you wrote it. Mm-hmm. Did the Drifters have the first recording of it? Uh, yeah, uh, yes. Um, oh, well, no, they no, had no, the no, first no, recording didn't. that was released. released yeah. But uh, it actually, uh, Carol and Jerry were recording um, a group, right? This is Carol King and Jerry Goddard. Yeah. yeah, but also the, Phil Spector cut our original version of On Broadway with, uh, I think, the Crystals. Yeah. Uh, he never, he never completed it. As a matter of fact, I have it at home. I should have brought it here. It would have been very, very interesting to hear. Now, how did that version compare to the one the Drifters did? 
Um, melodically, it was very, very close. Uh, the opening line, if I, it was instead of they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway, I was just, they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. Bright is very Gershwin-y, kind of you know, kind of more of a bluesy note. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was changed. Uh, I, I met Mike Stolo suggested that we change it. And also we didn't modulate three times, and that was a very good suggestion. And then lyrically, there was a different lyrical perspective. You can talk about it, Cynthia, if you want. Well, I think we had written it for um, for a girl group. So it was um, about a girl coming to New York and, and dreaming of, of Broadway and stardom. And it was much more um, kind of escape from a small town, and I'm not I'm going to make it. And when we met with Jerry and Mike and played this for them, they said, you know, we're we're doing the Drifters, so it would need a whole other perspective. And uh, you can go home and and do it yourself, or you can write it with us. And um, these guys were our idols. <laughs> we thought they were great, and it would be a fantastic opportunity to work with them. So we ended up uh, reworking the song together. Yeah, and was, it, it was really, it was like going to songwriting school, working with Jerry Lieber, as, for me as a lyricist. Because they, they have very two different approaches, uh, lyrically. Uh, Cynthia is much more organized. She would, would want to write the first verse, make sure it's completed, to go to the chorus. And yeah, I'd stay on that second line. If I couldn't get it, I'd be there for months. You know? <laughs> and she, <laughs> I wouldn't move. And, and Jerry just kind of jumped around and, and showed me that you can, you know, go different places and move things around. And you don't have to be so rigid. Yeah, it was a very exciting experience. Why don't we hear the Drifters' recording of On Broadway, the song written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. And, and Jerry, Jerry Lieber, Lieber and, and Mike, Mike Stoller. Stoller. Right. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. On Broadway. They say there's always. Now, Barry Mann, before we heard this, you mentioned that um, I think it was Lieber and Stoller suggested adding the modulations. We mm-hmm. just heard one of those key changes. Mm-hmm. What, what does that kind of key change do to the emotional quality of a song? Well, especially in that song, it really works because that song is basically one melody. It's, it's a verse that's repeated three times. So it would really get very boring to just do the same uh, melody three times in the same key. So that really uplifted the song. Um, one of the types of groups that you worked for was uh, the girl groups. You wrote uh, a few girl group hits, including mm-hmm. a couple for the Crystals, Uptown and He Sure the Boy I Love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Were there any um, considerations lyrically writing for the girl groups? Was a certain type of lyric, certain type of song? Uh, you know, there were. It's, it, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich really were the quintessential girl group writers. They were really into lots of sounds, and I was never really good at that. Um, I somehow felt that my girls' group lyrics, except for Walking in the Rain, which was really adolescent, <laughs> were um, kind of... I, I was trying to be adolescent, and I didn't know how very well, and they were just a little sharper. I mean, Uptown certainly is not a, a girls' group song. It, it, song. It's really uh, it's sung by a girls' group, but that's the only thing. It's It was one of the first sociological songs, and um, 
I, I, I just don't think that I was really a, a good girls group songwriter. I mean, if I could just kind of interject, I, when I first started writing with Cynthia, first she, played, she showed me some of her lyrics, and I really liked them a lot. And what I saw in them was this, there was kind of a, they were very, had a show quality to them. There was a sophistication. And I really thought that that sophistication combined with rock and roll would be very fresh. And I think Cynthia always has kept that kind of sophistication, uh, unless she really had to go sideways, which was like walking in the rain. And it was a great combination. Well, Uptown kind of tells a story. What's the story mm-hmm. it tells? Well, it really tells a story of um, a man who, um, because of his race, is is regarded one way in the workplace and then another way um, with his friends and family and, and the woman who loves him. Um, that song had a, a story to it also in that um, when we had written it and Phil had recorded it, I think there were a couple of, of notes that Phil had changed because the singer couldn't hit them. And um, and we went nuts. <laughs> you know, we were so young and insane that those things really mattered. <laughs> and one note could drive both of us over the edge. And uh, we begged him to come in and, and record it again with another singer that we had found who happened to be Carol King and Jerry Goffin's babysitter named <laughs> Eva. And oh, little Eva. <laughs> right. Who did the so, locomotion. Exactly. Right. So before little Eva did the locomotion, uh, we dragged her into a studio with Phil, and it was the first time she'd ever been on mic, and Phil was driving her crazy, and um, she didn't realize that when she was on the mic, even if we weren't recording, you could hear what she was saying in the control booth. <laughs> and so she was ranting about hating Phil during the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and he was enjoying it so much. And um, when she finished, we realized that Phil had made the better record anyway, and he really just was humoring us to do this. It was very sweet of him he, to do it. Humoring us and torturing her. <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, then Eva, of course, went on to become Little Eva. Well, let's hear the Crystals' hit version of Uptown. He gets up each morning and he goes downtown Where everyone's his boys And he's lost in an angry land He's a little man But then he comes uptown each evening to my Uptown, written by my guests Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. Was it Phil Spector who came up with that real Latin-sounding instrumentation, the castanets? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was Phil. Now, let me ask you about another song that, that you wrote, Only in America, and Jay and the mm-hmm. Americans had the hit of this. Now, I understand mm-hmm. the original version was actually written for the Drifters. It was, and it was recorded by the Drifters. But then when they tried, they brought these around to disc jockeys, the black disc jockeys, they wouldn't play it because they felt that the lyric was a lie. You know, and a very interesting little quick concept that we almost did. It wasn't really serious, but we almost wrote it the opposite way, and I would have loved to have done it. And, and that period was like, only, only, instead of, only, only in America where they preach a golden rule do they start to march when my kids try to go to school. Only in America, land of opportunity, do they save a seat in the back of the bus just for me. Which I thought was really very, it was very harsh, but. That was the way we wanted to go. So you yeah. wanted to go this like is, a civil rights protest song. Well, exactly, Absol- a- exactly. Yeah. And Jerry Lieber, who was the voice of reason, and, said, uh, yes. You'll never get this play. Don't 
waste your time. We we have to think positively, and we yeah. have to write it from another viewpoint. So basically, if we wrote it from a really white white uh, viewpoint, which was you know valid for the you know someone who was white, and they ended up by the way taking that drifters track and putting Jane and the Americans onto that track. So, so the the lyric you ended up with is is very kind of positive. Only in America, yes. land of opportunity, can a yeah. rich girl like you fall for a poor boy like me. Yes, yes. Um, how did the drifters feel when the song was taken away from them because it was felt that uh, a black group really couldn't sing uh, a song about how great America was? <laughs> be, I don't be believable. I don't know. We never no, we I never don't. discussed it with them, but I'm sure that they felt a sense of hypocrisy singing the song at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann speaking with Terry Gross in 2000. Cynthia Weil died last week at the age of 82. We'll hear more after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Only in America can a guy from anywhere go to sleep upon a This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. The songwriter Cynthia Weil, who wrote many hits in the 1960s with her husband, Barry Mann, died last week at the age of 82. We're listening to Terry's 2000 interview with them. Their hits included You've Lost That Love and Feeling, On Broadway, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, and Uptown. As songwriters in the 1960s, you first wrote for, you know, the vocal groups of the day, like the Drifters, the girl groups like the Crystals, um, you know, heartthrobs, teen idols. And then, like, the Beatles came along and the whole British invasion and started bands started writing their own songs. Mm-hmm. And certainly, like, after Dylan, singer-songwriters became really popular. You were expected to write your own material for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, Yet you managed to have a British Invasion hit <laughs> yeah, right. with, with the animals. We've got to get mm-hmm. out of this place, which was mm-hmm. r- a very big hit. How did you end up writing for them? Again, we didn't write for them. We wrote, we wrote that song specifically for the Righteous Brothers, and we cut a demo that was tailored for the Righteous Brothers. Oh. And at the time, we were being represented by Alan Klein, who represented a producer named Mickey Most. Mickey Most produced the animals, and we forgot... I even forgot that we gave Alan the song for, for Mickey Most. And I had this demo that I sang on, and uh, it was such a good demo that I was on. I was also on Lieber and Stoller's record label, Redbird, that the demo was so great that we, we were about to put it out as a single for, for myself. And uh, just that week we were supposed to put it out, Don Kirshner called us up and told us that the animals had released it, and it was number two in England at the time. So you didn't even know? No. So that killed your record, huh? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no. were you disappointed that um, your record wasn't going to be released or really glad because another group had a really big hit with it? We were crushed. Yeah, especially Cynthia. I, I was really upset. Um, the Animals had left out parts of the lyric and... You know, they had made a great record for the animals and, and done what they should have done for themselves, but they had, you know, changed lyric, and I felt, um, you know, I had compromised the song in certain ways. What, 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 what 
didn't they do that you had written? How did they change well, it? Well, if you listen to Barry's uh, version on, on Soul Inspiration, his album, you will hear the way it was written, and, and you can hear the difference. And the lyric. Yeah. I mean, just play one after the other, and, and it's pretty striking. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we hear the animal's version followed by the Barry Mann version from the new CD, Soul and Inspiration, and compare the two. In this sturdy old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine People tell me there ain't no use in trying You're so young and pretty And one thing I know is true You'll be dead before your time is due I know Watch my daddy in bed at night Watch his habit turn his grave He's been working and slaving his life away Oh yes, I Part of the city where the sun forgets to shine. People say that just ain't no use in trying. There ain't no use in trying. Whoa, girl, now you're young and oh so pretty. Staying here would be a crime. Cause you just grow old. Before your time Yes you will Girl I know that you will Oh I know it Yeah Yeah I know it Yeah I say yeah 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 Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil, now that it's been years since the animals hit, and um, now, Barry Mann, you have this new version on your CD, Soul and Inspiration. Which one do you prefer now? Still like the original better? You know, it's like apples and oranges, really. Uh, I like my version only because um, it kind of projects the way I had originally written it. And uh, the animals version really has its, its uh, you know, its charm. I won't accept I charm. cast my vote for the Barry Mann version. Oh. Well, thank you, honey. That's very nice of you. I mean, animals, truthfully, the animals, look, they, they were like from a coal mining town, you yeah. know, so that it really kind of has that kind of quality to it, a very raw coal mining rawness to it that uh, mine doesn't have. Well, yours but, has raw Brooklyn. All <laughs> right. That's right. You know what I'm saying? You're, yeah. you're raw from Flatbush. That's right. What are some of the surprising contexts that you have heard this song performed in? Hmm. Uh well, the fact that it became an anthem in Vietnam right. was was amazing to us, and and very moving. And uh, we're friendly with David Kennelly, you know, who, the photographer who won the Pulitzer Prize for one for Vietnam photojournalism, and uh, he he told us that it was uh, that song meant a lot to the GIs over there. So after the British invasion, and after you know Bob Dylan, when singer songwriters and bands writing their own songs became really popular. Who did you write for that you weren't writing for before? I mean, what, what kind of changes did you have to make in your lives as professional songwriters? Yeah, I think the biggest change melodically that happened was that 
songs became more guitar-oriented as opposed to keyboard-oriented. Mm-hmm. And I had to try to think a little bit more guitar even though it's very difficult to do. So we did... Um, I would sometimes come up with bass riffs or a guitar riff on the piano to to begin songs. And an example, uh, matter of fact, is uh, we got to get out of this place. It's a bass riff that really starts the song off. And we're, uh, the, uh, the song Kicks, uh, the Paul Revere and the Raiders uh, sang. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a guitar-oriented record. Same thing with Hungry. And Kicks also started off with, with a bass riff. Uh, so that was a very big change. But it, it seems to me that throughout our careers, um, to be completely honest with you, Every time something new happened, we were sure this was the end. And, you know, I mean, the first end was when the British invasion happened, and we were sure this is it, our careers are over. Um, I remember when disco came in, we thought it was all over. Um, There just have been so many times and so many fads that we thought um, our songs are not going to be happening anymore. And yet somehow we always seem to either just keep doing what we were doing and and it came into style again or else adapt just a little bit and uh, we were able to our careers were able to continue through the 70s and 80s and 90s Uh, it it just but it was not as easy as it as it looked because there were plenty of times where we felt that it wasn't going to continue why don't we hear one of your hits from the 70s? And this is a, a Dolly Parton recording mm-hmm. of Here You Come Again. Did you intend this to be a country song? No. No, I just wrote a song. As a matter of fact, I think that one we had B.J. Thomas in mind. Who yeah, did we did write it for, for B.J. Thomas, yeah. And how did Dolly, Dolly Parton end up recording it? I think one of the, the publishers, uh, our publisher at the time, uh, brought it to Dolly Parton and she ended up recording it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think she recorded I I had recorded it myself. Uh, I was. I had a deal on Arista Records, <laughs> as you'll see throughout my career. I've had many record <laughs> deals. <laughs> I, think it, I think we once counted thirteen labels. And <laughs> but anyway, uh, and I, I got, my, my version was really very good. It was a, very, very similar to the Dolly Parton record. As a matter of fact, Dean Parks, who was the guitar player on my record, ended up doing the arrangement for Dolly, and uh, so it's very, very similar. Well, let's hear her 1977 hit. Here you come again Just when I've begun to get myself together You waltz right in the door Just like you've done before And wrap my heart round your little When I'm about to make it work without you You look into my eyes And lie those pretty eyes And pretty soon I'm wondering That's Dolly Parton. We're listening to Terry's 2000 interview with songwriter Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you know what I found interesting? Like three of the most important women songwriters of the early rock and roll era, you, Ellie Greenwich, and Carol King, were all married to their songwriting partners. Do you feel and we like... are the only ones who are still married. Yeah, you're <laughs> the only one of those three That's still right. married. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Do you think that that having a male partner uh, was helpful, I don't mean artistically, but just in terms of of, um, uh, getting the kind of um, business respect that you needed to? Because there was was a man there. So, like, for somebody who might only respect um, a man in a business relationship, there was a man to deal with. You know, I never really thought about it, but I have a feeling that if Carol and I had written something great together, we would have gotten a great record. Um, Mm -hmm. We just never, when we wrote together, we were never really serious enough to bear down and and do it right. We'd kind of get sidetracked, but we did have a few records together, and um, I never felt that it stood in the way at all of, of getting a recording. So what's the secret to your marriage? Why did your marriage and songwriting partnership last when um, the your, your two friends, uh, you know, uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin and um, Ellie Greenwich and... Um, Jeff Barry. Jeff Barry, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. Why, why like their a... relationships broke up? Um, well, I have... Yeah, you your... Well, I mean, I think that it's a certain amount of tenacity and stubbornness and mm-hmm. hanging on through everything. And I also think that our neuroses happen to mesh in a very good way. That's true. Yeah. Um, I also think that underneath it, we're really friends. And also, I really think that that songwriting is something that holds us together. And probably most marriages, you know, p- people who are in the same field probably have a lot of problems because of it. But I think it helped our marriage a, a lot. It's so much in common. Back in the early 60s when you started um, writing uh, near the Brill Building, you had, what, an office in an, a high-rise building, mm-hmm. and you'd come to work each day um, and sit down in your office and write tunes. Not all the Sometimes we would be writing at home, too. It yeah? was very half and half, yeah. So yeah. What was your office like? Did it have, like, a typewriter and a piano in it? It just had a piano and a no. bench and a chair. That was it. And an ashtray. Yeah, and they... Give us stale bread every once in a while. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the great thing about coming in to write was that you you heard what everybody else was doing because the walls were quite thin. And so we would hear uh, what Goffin and King were pounding out um, in the cubicle next to us. And it was, it was always inspirational, and it was always... Um, it, it really kind of fed your creative hungers and... You know, now when everybody has their own home studio and we're all kind of isolated, you really have to make an effort to get that that input. Wasn't it distracting to hear other people writing? No. No, not really. It just played louder. That's all. Did you compete with each other about whose song the Drifters would do? Like, you know? Absolutely. Oh, we were very competitive. Absolutely. Yeah. What was the process like? How would you try to get the Drifters your song instead of letting Carol King get the next one with them? Well, it, it, we really didn't have control over that. Our publisher would, would have us all writing for, for example, the Drifters, and then um, he would Don, go over and pitch all the songs. The, that was Don Kirshner yeah, or who, somebody who worked for him. Who was a great publisher. He was an incredible salesman. And, uh, and so we would just be sitting out waiting to hear the verdict, you know. It got so powerful at that period that... Donnie did in that publishing company that, uh, say the Drifters were up, um, and Donnie would play him a song, and they would love the song. And he would say, you can only have it if, if my publishing company gets the, the B-side also, right. you know, or gets the next single. Or. And they, and record, some record companies would give in to that because, uh, you know. They wanted the song wanted, so bad. That's right. And they knew that we were writing so prolifically that uh, they'd always get another good song from us. 
Okay. Well, thank you both enormously for talking with us about your songs. Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. Cynthia Weil died last week at the age of 82. Here's Barry Mann singing another one of their songs, Soul and Inspiration. Girl, I can't let you do this Let you walk away Girl, how can I live through this When you're all I wake up for each day, baby Oh, my soul and my What good am I? I never had much going But at least I had you How can you walk out knowing I ain't got nothing left If you do, baby Oh, my soul And my What good am I? Oh, what good am I? Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film Past Lives, one of the most acclaimed movies at this year's Sundance. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. The new film Past Lives was one of the most acclaimed movies at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Our film critic Justin Chang calls it the most affecting love story he's seen in a long time. It tells the story of a budding New York playwright who gets back in touch with a childhood friend she left behind when her family moved away from Korea years before. Now in theaters, it's the first feature written and directed by Celine Song. Here's Justin's review. Past Lives opens with a shot of three people sitting at a bar in New York. A man and a woman, both of Asian descent, chat with each other, while another man, who's white, looks silently on. We hear some people-watchers off-screen casually wonder how these three are connected. Are the Asian duo a couple, or are they siblings? Or is the white guy the Asian woman's boyfriend? It's a nicely sardonic entry point into a story that's rooted in the writer-director Celine Song's personal experience. By the end of this exquisitely thoughtful and moving film, we've come to know and care deeply about all three of her characters, who are far more complicated than a snap judgment can convey. After that prologue, the movie flashes back 24 years to when the two Asian leads were young classmates in Seoul, South Korea. The girl is named Na Young, and the boy is named Hae Sung. They're close friends, practically childhood sweethearts, but everything is about to change. Na Young and her family are immigrating to Canada, and she and a quietly heartbroken Hae Sung lose contact. Twelve years pass. Na Young, now going by Nora and played by Greta Lee, is a 24-year-old aspiring playwright in Toronto. Hae Sung, played by Tao Yu, is an engineering student in Seoul. They reconnect by chance on Facebook 
and are soon spending hours video chatting on Skype. Even though they haven't talked in more than a decade, the old bond is still there, maybe stronger than ever. But realizing that her renewed friendship with Hei Sung is distracting her from her life in Toronto, Nora decides they should cool it for a while. It'll be another 12 years before they talk again, and by the time they do, Nora is living in New York and married to a fellow writer named Arthur. And yes, he's the white guy from the opening scene, played by John Magaro. One day, Sung tells Nora that he's coming to New York for a visit and would like to see her, sparking a conversation between her and Arthur. Are you mad? No. Feels like you were. I don't have a right to be mad. What do you mean? Of course you do. Nora. The guy flew 13 hours to be here. I'm not going to tell you that you can't see him or something. He's your childhood sweetheart. And it's not like you're going to run away with him. Are you? Definitely. I'm going to throw away my life here and run away with him to Seoul. Do you even know me? I'm not going to miss my rehearsals for some dude. I know you. Nora and Sung do meet a few times, visiting the Brooklyn Bridge and riding a ferry boat around the Statue of Liberty, a resonant image for this immigrant story. Their mix of sightseeing and soul-searching might remind you at times of Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, another talky, decade-spanning, continent-jumping love story. Past Lives is both achingly romantic and earnestly philosophical. More than once, Nora and Sung use the Korean term inyun, a Buddhist-derived concept which suggests that every meeting between two souls is the product of countless interactions, or near-interactions, in their past lives. They muse about what might have happened if Nora, if Nayoung, had stayed in Korea. Maybe she and Sung would have gotten married. Or maybe not. Maybe it's only because she left that their feelings for each other are so powerful now. The two leads are wonderful. Greta Lee, from the series Russian Doll, reveals Nora's uncertainty, but also her strength. She hints at both the confidence Nora's gained from her life as a successful artist, and the identity confusion she sometimes experiences living in the West. Tao Yu is quietly heartbreaking as the more reserved Hei Sung, who's faced personal and professional disappointment back in Seoul, and clearly longs for something with Nora that can probably never be. And the emotional stakes kick up several notches when Nora and Sung go out one night with Arthur, bringing us back to that scene in the bar. Magaro plays Arthur as a bit of a goofball, but also as a decent, understanding guy, who at one point amusingly refers to himself as the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. What makes past lives so moving in the end is the grace that all three of these characters extend to one another in an awkward situation with no heroes or villains. You've seen the more conventional romantic triangle version of this story, but Song is an after-melodrama. She wants us to see what's keeping Nora and Sung apart, but also what's binding them, possibly for eternity. Past lives, which compresses two decades into barely two hours, is the most affecting love story I've seen in ages. It ends with a curiously hopeful image, focused less on the character's past regrets and more on the infinite possibilities still ahead. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film Past Lives. On Monday's show, remember the news story about the white woman with an unleashed dog in Central Park who called 911 claiming a black man was threatening her, which he wasn't? Well, we'll talk with that man, Christian Cooper, who now hosts a National Geographic birdwatching show and was one of Marvel's first openly gay writers and editors. He's written a memoir. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Charlie Kyer. 
For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. We'll close out with this recording by Astrid Gilberto, who died Monday at the age of 83. The song became a smash hit, helping create a bossa nova craze in the U.S. It was also her first recording. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.